0: Welcome to the Octopi Podcast. On this episode, Gene and Matt will sit down to talk about a recent documentary they both watched that raises interesting questions about corporate responsibility, unforeseen consequences, and the impact that it's had on a global scale. All that right now. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Octopi Podcast. I am Matt. I am joined once again by the lovely Gene. Hello, Gene. Hey, Matt. And today, we are going to talk about something that both of us recently watched and made quite an impression uh, on both of us, uh, which was The Social Dilemma on Netflix. It was a documentary. For those who don't know, The Social Dilemma kind of takes a deep dive into the impact that they talk a lot about social media, but they also include things like Google and things like that, um, other big tech companies and kind of the impact that that has made in our day-to-day lives over the past decade plus uh, that they've been around. And so just really eye-opening stuff in there. I don't think I don't think you or I necessarily were caught off guard by a lot of stuff, but the numbers and the actual like spreading of the impact and how bad it's gotten, I think that was a little eye-opening, at least it was to me. So I, I'd love to know, you know, before we dive into it, What were some of your first impressions when you got done watching the documentary?
1: I guess for me, similar to Matt, I have been in this world a long time, you know, marketing through social media, etc. I was very aware of a lot of the points and I find myself describing it to folks and inviting them to watch it and, and saying, it probably won't surprise you, but it's good to watch. And then I realized, I think it will be surprising to a decent amount of folks, especially maybe you know older parents whose kids are much more adept than they are and things like that. So I think it's important for everyone, regardless of your awareness of social media and its impacts, uh, definitely a good place to start a conversation.
0: Yeah. No, that was one of the first things that I thought of as well was, I wouldn't say my dad is paranoid or anything like that, but he's never... Created a Facebook. He's never had any social media accounts. He's very old school with just like if you want to get a hold of me, I have my home phone number. I have my cell phone number. If I know you, you'll call, right? So I, I don't worry about him. But my mom, on the other hand, has just over the past, I would say, five to seven years, become just a junkie of Facebook. Just all about it. And 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 they talk about you know Google and ads and and the way that that some of these platforms are engineered and i would say she's also a bit of a junkie when it comes to ebay and the way that they've kind of gamified some of that the way they've engineered some of the notifications things like that like she has been really affected by that i mean i would you know go visit them and things and she's up late she's a night owl my dad's are up early but she's not up late doing anything aside from either being on facebook or ebay those are kind of the two things that she primarily looks at and so When I watched this, I was like, man, I really need to send this to my parents. I think it'll reaffirm something, you know, some of what my dad already believes. But I think this will be eye opening for my mom as well. Cause I I think she just, you know, like you mentioned, you and I have been around it. I've worked in big tech companies, been on the other side of it on the social media team, trying to figure out how do we get more clicks? How do we get more conversions? So, uh, like you said, not surprising. You've seen the tactics at work. And if you were on any of those bigger accounts for a lot of these platforms, they let you behind the scenes on a lot of stuff. And so we spent millions of dollars on Facebook ads as a company when I was there. And it would, because of that, we had our own personal uh, sales team. They let us in on, you know, here's what we're working on. Here's how we're working on conversions and things like that. But uh, since I've been away from it, I kind of forgot. And I'm in that seat now of like the everyday user versus the power user and the power users get to see and get reminded every day of what it's like everyday users we're just kind of like oh it's just quote facebook or it's just twitter or it's just you know we don't really think about it as this big machine that it's actually turned into because we're so used to advertisements whether it be on google or on tv or on hulu or youtube or any of these other platforms that allow for advertising we just think of it as part of our daily lives but we don't know the extent to which we've been kind of program which is really disturbing
1: yeah it reminds me i have this brilliant advisor and professor in university who would joke that he would stay up all night worrying about you know the powers um and their ability to to look into it and in political science you have this running joke that there's kind of two attitudes one like they can't read any of my stuff and privacy 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 and they're half like i'm not doing anything wrong who cares and I think what's interesting about this conversation is it's not so much about who cares because as they discuss in the documentary, no one's going through this. There's not like a human going, oh, Gene Larkin's Googling ethical yoga wear. No, but what they're doing is logging that so that when I log then into Instagram or whatever, I get hit with targeted ads for branded ethical yoga wear. And I personally am somebody who's like, oh, that's cute. And I don't really buy in. So I think that's one of the reasons that I never really stressed a lot about it. I've been aware for a very long time that I am the product that Facebook sells. I am the product that these companies make billions off of because they are selling their knowledge of me to marketers. So I personally, am one of those people that I'm like, whatever, I don't, I don't need to buy these things. So they don't really stress me out. Same thing as like that last aisle. when you're waiting to check out the grocery store that like has all those random little things that people can spend an extra 10 bucks on like mint and gum or whatever that they strategically place there. I've never bought those things. I, I don't buy into it, I guess, for lack of better word, but it is alarming how many people do. And I think the scariest thing, and I've had this conversation a lot of, If I Google something right now, right here, sitting at my laptop in Mallorca in Spain, and you Google the same thing, we're going to see alarmingly different results. And that's a fact that some people don't believe. They think Google is Google, and whatever they look is fact, and it's the whole world, and we're all seeing the same thing. And that is a problem.
0: Yeah, And, and I think you highlighted a couple of things there that I wanted to touch on. The first one is that there is a misperception that, Big companies sell your data to advertisers when reality what they're they're not selling the data they lose the value of that data if they sell it to people because it's no longer proprietary. What they call out the distinction that they make in this documentary, which I really think is an important one is that they're selling behavior change because if they just pop ads up that's one thing, but that doesn't entice. Advertisers to the platform unless they get you to change your behavior unless they get you to buy something you weren't going to buy before. Click to the website you weren't going to go to before. And to do that, they engineer a whole lot of different things and they, they also have to engineer your behavior on platform, meaning They have to keep you on platform so that they can put more advertisers in front of you so that they can continue funding and expanding. And that to me was more eye opening because I think you have those people who go, so what? We get served ads all the time. I know the risks I'm running when I go on websites. I know how cookies work and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they realize the small subtle things that people are doing in the background to try and change the way you move through the world. And not in, they're not doing it to hurt you. They are doing it in isolation because it's quote their job, right? When I worked for uh, retail and I was working in social media, I was tasked by the organization, which I believed in, like I loved my company, I loved the team I was on. And so when I was tasked with increasing conversion rates, my mindset wasn't, is this good for the customer? I was just thinking, this is good for our company, everyone's doing it, so I'm gonna work on doing that as well. And that's what I think a lot of these these people are doing. That's why I have a hard time with conspiracy theorists because they act like there's so much organization and everybody's teaming up behind the scenes. And in reality, it's that we're all in silos working separately. And by doing that, we distance ourselves from any accountability and we don't allow ourselves to see us as part of the big picture. We see ourselves just kind of in the background as just one small piece. I'm only doing this one thing. And I think to me, this is the heart of the entire documentary, which is unintended consequences and Mm -hmm what software has the capability to do. And that's part of why we started this entire company, right? When we talk about the software we want to build, it's about being intentional about what you want the outcomes to be. And a lot of these companies, whether it was Facebook, Twitter, Google, they started off very pure. And even those slight subtle changes that they did over time, they didn't see them as Google violating its don't be evil mantra. They saw it as, you know, oh, we're allowing advertisers to be here. And that's, pretty well-known, pretty widespread on TV, blah, 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 on billboards. So they didn't see it as bad and they just wanted to get better at doing that thing that they didn't perceive as bad. And in the process in getting better at that thing, I think that's where the tipping point came in a very unintentional way, which is just really fascinating to see how we got there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think to get deeper into the problem is, as you say, to earn money, they need to have us online for longer. So the the crux of everything important that they do is keeping us active on their profile, whether it's your Facebook profile, your newsfeed, Instagram, et cetera, that you're scrolling, that you're scrolling so comfortably and so easy enough that you'll stay there. Even if you meant to only do it for 30 seconds or five minutes, 20 minutes later, you're still there. That's their goal. Because they can serve you five times as many ads if you're there for 20 minutes than if you're there for five. And how they do that is becoming what's the problem you talked about silos at work, which I'm going to circle back into silos in the world, because just the same way as what I Google here will not show the same result as what you Google there. The other very important thing is it's feeding us what we are most likely to read, whether or not that's true, which means fake news is spreading exponentially faster than true news. And it goes line very similarly. I would love to see kind of a comparison piece on, or the BBC recently posted an article about how the oil industry caused us to doubt climate change. How did, the, how did that happen? And it goes all the way back into the 1950s when you know, big tobacco got together in New York City and were like, oh crap, this is killing people, but we're gonna lose sales, what do we do? And they kind of realized and worked with some really big powerful PR firms that are still in business today to sell doubt. And that's what they did and they didn't pay a penny and lose any legal battles for almost 30 years after knowing what tobacco did to folks. And now it's kind of known as the, you know, the tobacco game and you know, Big Oil has played it and all these other people have played it. And so for longer than either of us have been alive, since you know, even before my mother was born, we have had big corporations saying, we know that this is bad. We still need to make money. How can we do it? Doubt. And they have started spinning this to the point where today, you talk about conspiracy theories, but bigger and more easy to grasp, because I do think that's still very fringe, right? People are still kind of like, eh, conspiracy theories, that's a special kind of person to believe in that, but just, oh, I don't have to believe in climate change, or I don't have to listen to scientists because there's enough doubt and we see enough things that convince us that it's okay to not believe in, insert expert opinion here, That's where we become into the silo of people who don't believe in this and people who do believe in this and this political party and this. And over the last 30 years, we've become more polar as a country, both politically as well as socially in ways that we haven't seen in history. And I think one of the most alarming parts of social media is in just an attempt to keep us online, to make some more money through advertisements, they're spreading fake news and keeping us more angry, more sad, more intensely emotionally connected. And that has pushed us farther to our extreme corners.
0: Well, you brought up a couple of good things there that I think are worth calling out. And and to me, one of the big things that really occurred to me as I was watching this is the fact that as old as the internet is, we still haven't adapted to it or caught up to it with regulation and, and law. And mind you, part of that is because of how vast the internet is and the intricacies of how it works. But at the same time, you know, you think about similar world changing inventions. So if you think about cars, when ca- the automobile was first invented, it was pretty lawless, right? You could just drive it wherever there weren't necessary. There weren't speed limits. There weren't safety Aww. harnesses. Nothing like that was built into it and people died. A lot of people died because they didn't know how to use it. They didn't know how to drive it. People didn't know how to act around the cars, right? And now, and over time, what you saw was we have licenses that you have to register to be allowed to drive a car. We have speed limits that keep you driving similar safe speeds on the road. We have vehicle registration to make sure that the car you're actually driving is viable on the roads. You have to have insurance to protect not only yourself, but the people around you, and even the cars themselves have gotten better over, you know, we've started regulating how you can design cars with seat belts, airbags, car seats. And even though some of those things didn't even hop in till, you know, the 70s, 80s, because uh, <laughs> I still remember my grandpa's like 1970 Dodge Ram that just like, You were lucky if you got a (laughs) seatbelt while you were in there, but like it's evolved. And so it can be done. It has been done. We've seen it work and the same thing with TV, you know, which is a similar medium. Uh, We have regulations. You can't just put anything you want on any channel. There are ratings that you have to go through that have to get approved to go on specific networks. Otherwise you got to go on cable. And then most of the advertisers are actually vetted by the networks that show them, you know, all of these things show that we can regulate but what, what really has kind of happened is to your point, we've given everyone in the world a megaphone by saying the internet's an open place, say anything that you want to say, say what's on your mind, whatever. But we have not caught up with how we make sure that it is a safe place for anybody. Like, and I don't, I'm not just everybody, but anybody. We haven't made sure that it's really safe for kids, for adults, for uh, like, you know people who are not familiar with it you mentioned like the older generation people in their 70s and 80s didn't grow up with this technology so how would they know when they're getting scammed if something looks realistic you know things like that and we act like there's nothing we can do we have put ourselves in this position where we just seem so powerless and ugh, and i think it goes back to what you're talking about of the the money changing hands is because we we are so good at justifying that people who fight internet regulation justify that they're fighting it because my ad prices might go up if that's, the cost, if that's the case and I can't afford to pay more for my ads. They may not be as successful, right? If I'm not allowed to track every single piece of user data, my success rates, my conversion rates drop precipitously when I'm you know, an advertiser on a website and therefore I don't want to have to worry about that. My conversion metrics on my website will be different because I can't track user behavior and all these things. So I fight against my own self-interest because I want to fight against regulation in the internet because I think my bottom line is going to get hit. And this justification just allows us to continue pushing ourselves further and further down this this river of like feeling like we're helpless, like we can't do anything. When in reality, we're the only people that can do anything, but we choose not to because either I like having a free Facebook platform. I like being able to use Instagram for free. I don't want to have to pay a membership fee. And to me, just being served ads is, is part of the cost of admission for any of these platforms that we use, whether it be TV or any of these social media platforms, you know, you saw Medium go to that model and it was a struggle for medium going to a paid model and they've, they've slowly figured it out. And I, I think they're still probably working out the kinks, but they have struggled mightily and they're in an outdated medium of sorts, which is reading, right? And so to think of it going into these updated mediums is really interesting. And I just wonder how much are we gonna allow to happen and and I think you know you mentioned when we first talked about this the suicide rates jumped out at you of Mm -hmm. um girls aged now only 10 to 14 and 15 to 19 so Mm -hmm. basically teen and preteen girls since the advent of social media on mobile devices in what 2009 um we saw huge spikes and and I uh, I looked up the the data from from the that they called out in the um in the documentary. And 15 to 19, girls age 15 to 19, uh, in the US, I don't know about worldwide, but in the US, rose 70% since, and it had been relatively flat since then. There was like a small spike, I think, between uh, around 2004. But other than that, it actually started declining in the years leading up to 2000 and had stayed relatively flat. And then you see this huge spike when in the advent of social media on mobile And then for girls 10 to 14, it was even worse. It was 151% rise in, in suicide rates, which is just absolutely insane. And it just goes back to kind of what I'm talking about with like how many people have to die before we stop making excuses and start being more responsible with how we're building things and how we are regulating things and being more intentional with what we allow on our platforms.
1: And stop for a second. 10 to 14-year-olds, suicide. This is not grown-ass people with any concept. 10 to 14-year-olds shouldn't know what suicide is, but they do. And that's in itself not okay. I have worked with 10-year-old kids who are essentially slightly evolving, tiny humans. And they still think that there is magic in this world and with every year and more addiction to these websites, they are losing it. And it's heartbreaking, first of all. So we, you can't, we can't just blow over. These are little kids who have become so hopeless about what the rest of their life would look like that they successfully take their life. This is not attempts. This is suicide completions, which is just beyond horrifying. Now when you look at these numbers, you're also, it's calling out this, this disparity. And one of the things you talk about is plastic surgeons having these young girls show up and be like, I want to look like the Snapchat filter makes me look.
0: Mm, Yeah,
1: It's so fundamentally being part of it, like their lives and who they are, that they can just put this filter on themselves and get the interaction that they want. And I think the young girl, the young daughter in the, the film that's kind of like walking through life as, as a socially addicted kid speaks so gr- greatly to that of like how one comment about her ears can set her off so much and how upsetting that is. And I think that is such an important thing. And whether it's harm, I've personally become huge on it, like even on Pinterest, which is one of them for sure, but not to the same level of time and ads, etc., than a lot of other ones. But occasionally they'll throw me up one of like, Oh, how to stay skinny or something like this and i will report it as self-harm because these are the things and these are the titles that also are leading to this cycle of little girls anorexia and unhealthful behavior and etc there's just no reason that that should be a conversation and you talked about cars i think one of the important distinctions is that from the advent of the car to one that could drive fast enough to kill you in a head-on collision there was a lot of time but the advent of the internet to where we are today hasn't been that long. And for those lovely humans who have never studied law, it's a painful process to move things through. Even looking at cyberbullying among kids, like if they said this in school, there are rules and we know what we can do and we know how to handle it. And all of a sudden, kids and teachers and faculty and administrators are like, what do we do? Because the kid can say that wasn't me or that was just my username. And they, and there's no accountability. And so it becomes this dangerous dark space for continued harassment and problems and lies that are going along to this bipolarization of this country. And one of the things that drives me crazy is you know, a company like Facebook can the forward and say, oh, you know, well, it's not us. We're not approving the fake news. It's just, this is what happens, and it's, it's the algorithms, and we can't, you know, we can't filter for fake news, and we can't limit these you know, pro-anorexia websites, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, then then we don't give you, then you have to pay X amount of tax. If you give them some penalty and say, until you figure out how to do it, you cannot let people under the age of 20 on your website or whatever. I promise you 48 hours later, they will come up with a way to implement that. What they're saying is right now, it's not financially beneficial for us to reprioritize our engineers to make this algorithm, this beast of an algorithm into a semi-ethical, humane entity. And we Mm -hmm. aren't either given the carrot or the stick to make us do that. So free reign on the mental health of the world around us.
0: I think that's a great point. And that's something I don't think we really talk about, which is how do we put pressure on these? Because I think a lot of it breaks down to, or boils down to willpower of users. And we talk about this when I work with organizations in in workshops, when I do leadership development, things like that, one of the things that we talk about a lot is when you put a person up against a system, the system almost always wins. And over time, it absolutely, like 100% of the time will win. And so when you have thousands of engineers being paid to convince you and get you addicted, what chance do you have to fight against that, right? Zero. And so we have to put the accountability on the people who are paying the employees to, to do that. We have to, have to put that, that pressure on them because to be honest, we're just like, and I'll, I'll first to admit we're weak-willed. I'm weak-willed, you know, when it comes to this stuff. Um, yeah. It's really hard. And it's not just it's not just kids, adults, people our age, people older than us get addicted because mm-hmm. it's not, it's not about, you know, ooh, I'm liking photos on Instagram or I want to be this, you know, travel blogger or anything like that. For for a lot of people, it's it's how I stay in touch with people that I grew up with. And mm. even if that's the innocent version that you're using this as, yeah. you're still exposed to all of the bad stuff. And you probably end up clicking on ads. You probably end up, you know, furthering the machine a little bit. Um, you brought up something really good that I wanna to add some some color into, which is you mentioned that these girls actually successfully committing suicide is just horrific but then they also provided some additional statistics on self-harm so like hospitalizations for non-fatal self-harm so girls that were just still either cutting themselves things like that and were it had to be admitted to the hospital it was that bad and in the same time period as that ra- rise in suicides in the same demographics, what you see is in girls aged 15 to 19, a rise in six, 62%. And in 10 to 14, once again, this is even higher than the spike we saw in, in suicides. It's almost tripled. It's a 189% rise in that same amount of time. And so it's just insane to see these numbers and the correlation. So you think about the grand total of like fatal and non-fatal, and it's just, astounding the amount of self-harm that is coming specifically from this demographic, you know, and obviously correlation is not necessarily causation. I get that, but it's hard to argue that with the advent of these technologies and what you're hearing, like you mentioned, Gene, of a lot of the logic between the insecurities and and the the way, cause I mean, I think about myself at 10 and I was an emotional ass kid, like, You know, everything was the worst thing in the world. I mean, I think about my nephews and my niece right now, and they're what, six to 10 and and in between. And everything is the worst thing in the world if it it happens to a 10 year old. Because if you think about the percentage of their lives, a year is 10% of their life. Whereas you and I, a year is just minuscule. They just go by fly by now. And so the impact of that time period and every single event that happens in someone's life at that point, and every piece of information that's introduced to a kid is that much more inflamed in their mind. And so having this kind of stuff around just, you know, exacerbates that.
1: Well, and not only that, hormones, puberty, folks, mm-hmm. this is not the same level-headed human. And it's not, it's not exclusive to people in puberty because the same thing, you know, kind of the reverse puberty of menopause for women etc there are times you know pregnancy there are times where unapologetically biologically our bodies are throwing us enough hormones and curveballs that makes functioning as a relatively sane human feel almost impossible and you take that and add anything to the mix and it's already dangerous and i will call out that it is important to look at the self harm that's hospitalized but let's be very clear that's physical harm and that still i know girls who were whether it suffered with eating disorders or cutting themselves for years without their parents finding out for years before they ever any doctor knew so this is again a very small portion that was so bad that they ended up in the hospital and not any of the mental like the realities of the mental effects of these things and how it at this age kids are supposed to be figuring out how humans relate how you relate to your teachers, how you relate to your parents, what does a loving relationship look like? What do friendships look like? What do power dynamics look like between teachers and us or older kids, et cetera? They're trying to figure this out and it's fundamentally undermined by a system that's built. And even though you and I understand it, they don't understand it and it's built for profit and they are the product. And I think this is why adults need to figure this out and need to talk to kids about it. And everyone who has a child should be watching this with their kid and figuring out how much time, if any time, they'll be allowed on. And talk about us weak-willed, even those of us who are strong-willed. I am one of the most stubborn people you will ever meet. And I have told (laughs) myself- Can
0: confirm. Yes, can confirm.
1: (laughs) 452 times, I'm not bringing my phone into bed. And I I work on habits and I do believe in building habits. But you know, the former head of Pinterest get on there and said, I built the schematics that keep you scrolling during the day. And I go home and at night, I can't stop scrolling. It's meant to, even when you understand it, be almost impossible to stop down because even the way where you be like dragged down to like update your feed, it like gives you a dopamine hit. It's yeah. it's a, the same way drugs play on your brain. It's the same way that drug dealers figure out to cut it to make it cheap enough so that you'll keep coming back, addictive enough that you can't say no, but not strong enough to kill you. It's literally that's how these developers are doing it behind the scenes. And a hundred percent, there are beautiful benefits. There have been healthy revolutions and connections and family getting to know each other from across the world. And I can stay in touch with people on every end of the planet. And I love that. And no one's saying it's all bad. And no one's saying that the people who did this have some evil sadistic desire for humanity or want Russian influence. I don't believe any of that for a minute, but there are two sides of the sword. We very clearly know it. And like you say, we need to acknowledge it, we need to regulate it and the government needs to regulate it. As families we need to regulate it. We need to help each other better regulate it. Because if not, it will be the end of humanity as we know it, because it's fundamentally changing how little humans see the world. And you and I had a date and had to go to sports practices and had to figure out life without it. And we still remember that. But I think about my teeny tiny nieces and nephews who, when, I, when they were two and they'd pick up my phone and find a you know, Peppa Pig video, I'd be like, wow, she's so smart. And now I think that she's going to middle school and she literally has never known life without an iPhone. And I'm like, this is why we need to understand. This is why we need to have these conversations because they don't know anything else. And we have to make them know that they're not alone and find healthy ways.
0: Yeah. You brought up so many great things there. And and for me, one of the things that is not, address and i think you did a great job of bringing this to light and i I do want to just reiterate we are not anti-social media we are not anti uh, google facebook twitter any of these things what we are is pro accountable organizations pro intentional software use right because you know, oftentimes what we think about is things in our own personal context. And that's a lot of, I think what's really, if you you pull out the scope harming us right now, not just here in the US, but across the globe, is that to the point you made earlier about Google having individualized search results, you know, we talk about echo chambers and we act like that's just on social media. It's also in our search engines. And when that's the case, what happens is we we are reaffirmed that our view is correct or the view that is shared by other people whether we think that cognitively or if it's just subconscious we have the idea that oh if this is coming up in search results this is probably the truth and when we do that we just reaffirm our own personal echo chamber and we stay in it and when that's the case we don't we we lose our skills for empathy and and thinking of other people and those of us without kids like myself, it's easy to stop thinking about the impact of social platforms and the way that we run our ad platforms and the things that we serve up on Google to kids because we don't see it every day. And some parents even, they see it happening, but because they're so close to it, they forget that that's actually happening in the background as well because they use it as Oh well I'm just I'm wiped out I'm going to give the kid the iPad and let him go crazy let him play games whatever and it's it's just kind of built this cycle where we've allowed ourselves just like I mentioned earlier from the creators we allow ourselves distance from the consequences of it because it doesn't impact me and that's I think what is really the engine that's powering a lot of what we're seeing today socially is that when we live that way when we choose to refuse empathy what we're really doing is harming ourselves and we, we stop making progress and so that is one of the huge consequences I've seen from this is the loss of empathy because we just surround ourselves and like you said earlier, the advertisers, the, the platform builders are paid by advertisers to give you things that reinforce your view because you're going to act on those things. It's not because they're intentionally trying to lead you down the wrong path or anything like that. Like I think you and I both agree that's not our perspective. There's not Mm -hmm. malicious intent there. There might be malicious intent by users, but by Mm -hmm. the actual tool makers and platform makers, there's not the malicious intent. The intent for them is how do I maximize the viability of this product over time? Mm -hmm. And for them, that is getting you to click on things and rather than saying, this is the truth, we don't regulate the truth. What we regulate are what you're gonna click on. And so we're gonna serve you things that we already know you agree with based on your history before. Whether that's ads, whether that's posts of people that you're friends with in your network, things like that, because engagement equals you coming back to the platform equals advertiser spending more, right? And so it becomes this this really interesting cycle. And I mentioned, I mentioned the, um, lack of empathy Mm -hmm. and I want to zoom out for a little bit for this next part of the conversation and talk about it in a bigger context, not just thinking about platforms, but thinking about the ripple effects and how other people are integrated into it. And so one quote that really struck me, and it was early on in the documentary, but this, it really got my attention was, um, I think it's like the primary guy who's at the center of the, the documentary, but he said never before in history have 50 designers, 20 to 35 year old white guys in California made decisions that would have an impact on 2 billion people. And to me, like China's population is what less than 1.4 billion. Mm-hmm. No government entity in the world has that kind of power and that kind of influence, mm-hmm. which is insane. Right? A company that is being run by 20-somethings in a different country can have a bigger influence on the population of a country than its own government can. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the lack of diversity in Silicon Valley today, and then I think about how even worse it was when these platforms were built. I mean, you think about when Facebook first got, so this is gonna date me, but I remember I was on college campus my freshman year when Facebook first came out in 2004. Uh, And you had to be a college student. You had to have, and they had to have your college registered on Facebook so that your email address could even work to Mm -hmm. log in. And so I remember being on the wait list for Facebook. So like, this is old school. But at that time in 2004, diversity, not on anybody's radar when it came to building these platforms, right? It was,
1: and at the Ivy leagues where they were born even less.
0: Exactly. And, and and what you saw was that all of the design principles and things reflected that there wasn't a lot of diversity. There wasn't people asking a lot of questions because everybody was coming from the same mindset.
1: Mm. And so,
0: at that time, the, the original platforms that were developed were developed largely by these homogenous groups of basically white guys and Asian guys, mostly white guys at that time. Over the next five, 10 years, what you saw was um, it became predominantly white males and Asian males. Still though, to this day, you don't see hardly any diversity in the big, let's say the big four in Silicon Valley. So I looked up some data and I'll give you some data points here. So We'll start with women in tech and specifically women in tech jobs at Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. So in 2014, Apple had the highest amount of women in tech positions, in technical positions at 20%. So one fifth of their entire technical workforce was women. In 2019, no one has more than 23% out of those four. (laughs) So even, I mean, at the lowest end, Facebook in 2014 had 15%, it's now at 23. It made the biggest stride and still not even a quarter, none of them have even a quarter of their technical workforce being women. And it's even worse when you look at black and Latin employees in technical positions. So in Apple, as of last year, White employees in technical positions made up 49%. In Asian, 35%. uh, Latin employees, 8%. And black was 6%. So grand total of 14 between the two groups, which is far worse than when you even look at women, which is absurdly low as well. Then you look at Facebook, it's 48% white, 52% Asian, and they don't even have listed percentages for any other ethnic groups in that company. And it's the same, roughly the same at Google. Uh, So at Google in 2019, 48% white, 43% Asian, and didn't even have listed the rest to make up distinctive distinctive group, distinctive groups. Um, And then at Microsoft, once again, very similar, 51% white, 39% Asian, and the rest not even listed at EPS percentages. And so when you think about that, how many of us would be comfortable knowing the lack of diversity that is perpetuating and designing these platforms that we're using? I don't think a lot of us would be comfortable with that.
1: I disagree. Yeah? I'm not, but I think, and look at Congress. We all know what it looks like and people don't vote. So I think, unfortunately, and maybe I'm a bit more pessimistic than that, I do think people don't care enough. And it does not surprise me in the least bit, just like the heads of the big tobacco in the 1950s and big oil in the 1980s, a bunch of super wealthy elite white men, and now occasionally in tech as well, Asian Asian men, who have power, who have money, who have monopoly, and want to keep it. So it has no benefit to them to filter for truth or anything else. Um, And I think an important note in case you haven't seen this yet or to reinforce it if you have, it's not just you based on what you know and what you click on. It's you, your age, where you live, who you're connected to, what you do that makes a difference. For example, if I as a Facebook marketer who wants to pay for an ad, I can specifically go into a group of people who don't believe in vaccines, and then subsect, people who look like this and maybe are younger, low-income women or less educated males from larger households who typically are not information seekers and be that specific to target you. And what that means is more than just your behavior, it's gathering stereotypes on your race, your ethnicity, your age, your location, to try to influence you as we've touched on but not been don't do, not dove in di, dove in divin dove. dove.
0: we haven't dove yeah this is so weird yeah that's a weird <laughs> phrase <laughs> well,
1: i mean in case you don't know the longer you don't live in one language the more likely it is that you screw it up um
0: i mean it's english <laughs> we all screw it up anyway those of us who just speak english not great at it so
1: Thank you for making me feel better about my not speaking my native tongue well. Is, (laughs) now I lost completely where I was going. Um, It is an influence on your behavior. It's not just buy something that you want to buy or buy something that you didn't necessarily need to buy, but maybe you had a bit of extra income and you wanted to buy it. It's get you to engage with media that may change the way you believe about something because you clicked on, is the earth really flat? For example, there was a guy on there talking about the flat earther movement that spiraled out of control out of YouTube. And it based that on other behavior and changing that. And then the more you see it and the more you see it, it it makes you think that it's becoming more popular, that more people are talking about it, that it must be true, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it gives you the false sense of accuracy and truth in the way that the platform works. And I think this is something that we all need to remain acutely aware of. A bunch of predominantly white dudes who can afford to live in San Francisco or Silicon Valley and some Asian men as well. Very few women, very few people of color, um, not even getting started on, you know, the LGBTQIA community, et cetera. Very, very, very homogeneous group of folks over there are setting you up to fall down these rabbit holes to earn more money. And that's not out of malice. It's not a problem, but you need to be aware of that so that just because, and here's something. Hey, Google, you don't want to be evil. Just throw a little disclaimer up there on that beautiful, clean homepage. Results may vary or results depend on you and your location. Throw it out there. Just let people know that when they type in a word, the things that come up next aren't based on fact, aren't based on what's going on in the world, They're based on so many individual particular factors and therefore need to be taken with a grain of salt. We used to be taught as kids in research about firsthand sources, secondary sources, bias, et cetera. And we are not talking about that on the web. Everyone who uses Google just as much as Facebook, et cetera, needs to know that it is biased and it is built for you to stay on their platform longer.
0: Yep, And as we say this, right, we, we acknowledge they are growing, but to your point earlier, there is no carrot and stick other than shaming that people have said, you need to do better. You need to do better for these tech companies. And therefore they're, they're really kind of dragging their feet. Right. And it's the same thing with diversity initiatives in most industries, right, is until they are affected until their bottom line is affected. There's a lot of companies out there who just don't care um, not to make them bad companies, but they would rather focus on the things that make their jobs easier than focusing on the things that make it harder. And tech is absolutely one of those industries. Before we go into Una Casita Mas, what I want to do is, and maybe this is part of that, but I want to talk about what can we do? What can each individual do because I think there's a lot of doom and gloom in the conversation that we've been having and there was also in the in the documentary and and the the thing that I didn't like about it well I wasn't a fan of like the little play that they had going on throughout and and like the little actors that they had going on I wasn't a big fan of that but the other thing that I really didn't like about the design of the documentary was that the solutions that they gave they didn't give them until like the credits were rolling. So you had to watch through the credits to be like, how can I avoid some of this stuff? So I want to, I want to spend a little bit of time before we check out today on what are some things that people can do? So do you have any suggestions? What are some of the things that come to mind for you when you think about what can I personally do to help fix the problem?
1: Well, I think there's two main angles grassroots, all of us talking about it, changing the way we interact with these apps. Absolutely, that's a huge thing. We change the supply and demand for the product that is us on these social media websites and it will change what we see. And the other one is lobby for change at the the governmental level, at the regulation level.
0: Individually, you and
1: I, we can have accountability buddies, we can have conversations, we can open up the conversation with our friends and and family from other parts of the world and other places to say, and remind them, and it can be simple. You know, when you tell somebody, hey, your Google search is yours and yours alone because of you, um, and it's tailored to you, it's not based on fact, they might be like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Have a little fun test, jump in a Zoom room, both Google the same thing at the same time, sharing screen and and show them how different it can be, right? Take screenshots, have the conversation, show the clean evidence of what that looks like. Educate yourself. Number two: on the reality of this doubt, where it came from, all the way back from big tobacco, cycling forward into today, whether it's climate change or political action, etc, and how people have continually used doubt to continue to earn money. We will link the article that the BBC did on this um, in the show notes. But educate yourself, share those articles, talk to your friends about it, um, and then turn off the stuff that you don't need. Set yourself alarms. There are plenty of apps out there that will lock you out of social media on your computer for a certain amount of hours. Um, I went and turned notifications off on some of them. Don't turn them off on your phone. I didn't realize this. I stopped getting phone calls. That was a bit a little problematic for me personally. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, look at your phone. What do you need? What do you not need? Delete stuff. And if you are in a place where you do not need Facebook, I personally don't use it for anything but groups. I know a lot of people will say this, but literally like courses I've taken, the only discussions you have are in Facebook groups, which is why I actually got back on the platform. Yeah. But I am pushing everyone. And I've talked to people who run these things to try to find an alternative medium, whether that's a Slack channel or something else and get out of it. Save those pictures you love from old social media apps, download them, save them on an external hard drive and cut them out of your life if you don't need them. And the biggest, most important thing is going to be tiny humans. Don't forget about them. The tiny humans in your life, check in with them, talk about the fun stuff and the bad stuff, and see what their life looks like, their perspectives on the world and social media and human relationships, and insert some of that magic that is standing outside of school, waiting and freezing because your soccer game got done early and you had no cell phone, you couldn't even call your parents, and you no know was over, nobody was live streaming it, and you sat in the cold and waited, and you survived because little kids today need that reminder.
0: Yeah, I think you covered a lot of bases there. And I love that you talked about supply and demand, because that to me is essentially voting for companies, is really just making sure that you, you know, first, the first thing I I kind of wrote down here was stop spending on ads on these platforms because when you do that, you are incentivizing them to continue doing what they're doing. And um, I know that it's hard to stop because at the same time, good conversion rates, likely that you're gonna get some customers on it, right? And if you engage with these platforms, do it in a responsible way as an organization. If you wanna have a Facebook page, great, go ahead and create that, but make sure that what you're doing on those Facebook pages is not just perpetuating the like, buy this, buy this, feel bad about yourself. So you buy our products, right? Be ethical in the way that you're running your Facebook page and or Twitter account or whatever. Um, So that's one thing I would say similar to what you mentioned with the little ones, limit platform use for just not only those in your, in your care, like your kids or whoever, but also for yourself, because kids are going to, one of the things that I just hated growing up and I think most of us probably did was when we would see our parents do something and they would tell us not to do it. And we'd be like, but what about you? And they'd say, well, I'm an adult, I can, right? Well, that's one of the hardest things to do is to be disciplined yourself. So limit your kid's use, but also limit your own because that just shows them what is acceptable and what's not. Next, I I would say stop clicking through on ads. So what you can do is if you see an ad that looks intriguing or interesting or you're reminded of something you want to do, just open a new tab and go to the website. Because if you don't click on that ad, it doesn't give revenue. In fact, it just charges the advertiser and they're going to stop spending money on those ads. And then you can just go back and they can spend money on advertising and other mediums or heaven forbid they spend money on developing their products even more. So That's another thing that you can do. Just open up a new tab and go directly to the the website rather than clicking on ads. Like you mentioned, change your settings, limit the notifications that you get. And then one thing that came to my mind as well is fight for education reform, which seems disconnected in a way, but in reality, the education system, especially here in the US, that we have been working with for the past hundred years has largely remained unchanged while the world has wildly changed. And if we fight education reform because it's hard or because it's unproven and things like that, we're gonna keep putting ourselves further and further back. We're not preparing people with skills that they actually need in today's world. The skills that were needed and used in the education system in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s even, were very different than the ones that are relevant to the world now. And so if we can, instead of worrying about Hitting all of those buckets that we've traditionally grown up with just because we grew up with them. So therefore, everybody needs to know them, but start working on educating kids at a young age around how do you understand what is real? What is the truth? How do you fact check websites? What's the difference between an opinion piece and an actual research piece of media? Um, How do you um, navigate social media platforms in an informed way? How can you avoid addiction? All of these things are very relevant today that weren't as relevant then. And so we need to have education catch up with the world that we're building and allowing to evolve in front of us. And then the last thing I would just say is something that was thrown out there at the end of the documentary, which I would just love to reaffirm, and it's hard because it's uncomfortable, but follow accounts that you disagree with and search for things that you don't agree with. Because the more you do that, the more you confuse the algorithms and the harder it's going to be to put you in an echo chamber when it comes to serving you up, whether it's ads, suggested groups, suggested content, things like that. If I only am following a certain political party's agenda on my searches or following certain political figures, or following certain family members who have certain beliefs that I agree with, and I'm only engaging with content that I agree with, then all that's going to serve me is content that I agree with. And that's going to, back to what we were talking about, put you more in that echo chamber, make you more of, you know, less empathetic, less critical thinking is going to happen because you're just going to be like, cool, I have it all figured out. So search for other perspectives you disagree with, follow accounts you disagree with, and that will hopefully help you create some more empathy in your life and also avoid some of these these pitfalls of the the platforms that we see.
1: All such solid advice. And talk about it guys. Just talk mm-hmm. about the hard sakes. You know, it's I remember when I was in education, uh, I used to teach as well. Um you know people there was this idea like, oh if you talk to kids about say sex, they'll think about sex. No. <laughs> Talking to kids about suicide doesn't make them think about suicide. It gives them enough warning that like if it has not yet come up, if it does, they can come back to us. Talking about self-harm with 10-year-olds may feel too early, but these statistics tell us it is not. Yeah. So if the first time they hear about it is from us, then thank the lucky stars. Mm -hmm. But they know that they can come to us with those dark and sometimes scary topics. So normalize the ugly parts as much as we celebrate the positivity of a uber-connected world.
0: I love that. Because if you think about back before the dawn of the internet, maybe you could wait on things to come up naturally. Maybe kids wouldn't be exposed. You know, you, you mentioned sex. If, if you didn't want to have the sex conversation at 10 years old, maybe you didn't have to because there weren't that wasn't happening around them. They weren't being exposed to it. The internet, pornography is everywhere. And so your kids will find it whether or not you like it and no matter what safe search settings you have on their phones on your home computer they'll find it somewhere their friends will find it and show it to them right so we're in an era where you can't avoid the uncomfortable topics so i love that you brought that up you absolutely need to be the first person to talk about it and 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 i love that you said just normalize it because the thing that i see happening and this this isn't just with kids this is with adults this is in our organizations is the more that you make it hard to talk about difficult topics the more we hide them and the more they harm us in the long run so put stuff out there make it easy to talk about create that availability for conversation to have with your family members with your friends whoever it might be try not to lash out if they disagree with you because they're going to be less likely to come back and have the conversation and ask you those questions next time, because they're gonna be like, well, I know where they stand. So why would I even have that conversation again? Okay, shall we do una cosita mas, maybe do one a piece? Would you like to start us off? Or do you want me to start us off?
1: I was just gonna say, and this is this is gonna be different than our traditional una cosita mas. It's not somebody to go read and study, although there's a lot of great people talking about this. So you know, you can find more. But there's a lot of ways to connect with people that isn't on social media, that isn't on Google. Um, Zoom's a great example. We use it for work. We talk to each other. We get to see each other's faces. We get to engage. We get to have a conversation. Um, my cousins, actually, there's five of them that live all the way across in different corners of the country. Once a week, during it started during COVID, but they just jump on a jump on a video call, all of them together, whoever can make it, and they make a, they set hour to like t- chat, catch up, talk about life. Do that, you know. Like I think about the older, you know, demographic, like you know, your mom, my grandma, etc. You know, they talk. Oh, people don't call me anymore. If I'm not on social media, I don't know what's going on. Call them. Telephones still work. Texting, video calls, FaceTime, Zoom, whatever it may be. There are other ways that you can connect. And rather than say hard no to any of it, or rather than completely shutting off, maybe minimize and pick the people in your life. And maybe you have a rotation of certain people once a week, certain people once a month, certain people once a quarter. But who knows? Just call somebody. They may answer.
0: Yeah, I like that. It's interesting, too, because I, I need to be reminded of that, too, because I hate phone calls. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. It's something I need to work on. I'm cool, adding that
1: to my, we'll call him once a week list. See how many times
0: he <laughs> Oh, I will based not. On his,
1: based on his texting response, ladies and gentlemen, I think I will get an answer once every quarter if I call him weekly, but we'll
0: find it's out. It's quite possible. Matt, um, what is
1: your una cosita mas?
0: Yeah, for, for me, similar to you, it's going to be different than what we'd normally throw out there. I mean, there's there's a ton of other um, documentaries I think are important watches. Um, there was one that I watched, I think it was just called Capital. Capital. Um, that came up suggested right after this on Netflix and it was about the increasing inequality of, of the world and how we got there and it's an international perspective, which I thought was really valuable. So, so I encourage you to watch that. But I think for me, the biggest thing that I would like to leave everyone with is that knowing that a lot of the people who are probably listening to our podcast are individual contributors and leaders within organizations is that It's on each of us to make sure that we are doing our part to live these values at our own organizations. We can't project it and say, Facebook needs to fix this, Google needs to fix this, and yet we run our own companies in a way that's counter to that. And so this for me is the big part of why we started this organization, which is you gotta live the values you profess to believe in. And as an individual leader in the company the phrase that I like to use is project it before you expect it. And you can't expect other people to live to a standard that you yourself are not willing to do. And I don't mean that in terms of I want people to believe what I believe. I mean, following through and not being a hypocrite. I I mean, not just believing in something when it's convenient for you, but then when it's on the other side of the coin, flipping it and going, well, you know, justification, justification, justification. And so that puts a big burden on those of us in organizations who are in roles of authority and in in leadership positions. But I think it's absolutely a requirement of leadership moving forward, is that you actually represent and embody the things that you wanna see in the outside world, even when it's difficult in your own organizations. And so making sure you're running things ethically, making sure you are doing things in a values-based way, uh, making sure that you are showing up as your best self before you expect other people to do the same and not blowing up at people when they make mistakes. If you don't want people blowing up at you when you make mistakes. So to me, this is, this is really the, the point I'd love to drive home from this documentary, which is we are each accountable to build the future that we wanna see. And you can't keep putting it on everybody else. You gotta take steps your own self. And so that's, that's what I'd like to leave everybody with. All right, Gene. Well, thank you so much, as you know, passionate topic for both of us. So thanks for hopping on and sharing perspectives today. And uh, I'm excited for our next conversation. We'll see you maybe next time. Bye, everybody.